Would you please stand while we look at the scripture that Erickson will be uh, preaching from this morning? This is from Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. And to the church, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except for the one who receives it. I can't wait to uh, see my white stone and find out what my name is going to be. That's great. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. Rob, we'll, we'll get to what you're talking about in a little bit. But what you just shared was really beautiful. <clears throat> well, my name is Erickson Jobert. Very thankful to be with all of you this morning. So a few weeks ago, in the order of these letters to uh, these churches in Revelation, uh, Jim preached through the letter to the church in Smyrna, one of the seven churches addressed by Jesus himself, who had nothing but good things to say to this church, a church uh, that, that experienced great suffering under Roman rule, uh, suffering at the expense of real danger, whether it be betrayal from fellow Jews within their community, imprisonment, or death, they remained faithful. Today, rather, we continue on with our series diving into this letter to the church in Pergamum, a letter that is humbling because there is encouragement, there is exhortation, and then there's a promise of reward. But this is humbling because of the real persecution that is real, both in this text this morning and in the world today. Just this past week, ISIS captured and publicly executed 20 Christians in Borno, Nigeria, a war-torn nation. And according to one article, Islamic groups for some time have been seeking to establish Sharia law in Nigeria or Islamic law all the time. These are dark times for the people of God this morning, giving us some reason to be encouraged but, but also to be concerned as well that, yes, God is reigning. There is evil in our midst. And even in the West, where we are experiencing the fastest shift in church history, where people are de-churching, they're, they're leaving churches without a desire to come back. Now more than ever, churches even are losing credibility in the public sphere. There's constant uh, heretical teaching that's talking about 
who God is and who man is in these, um, these public spheres, these, uh, these, these networks, these social media avenues that portray God and man not in the way that the Bible intends. These are dark times, and we have to come to this reality in the West that there could be real persecution, real suffering at our doorstep, whether it's in our generation or in the one to come. But although there is suffering, we are promised a great reward for those who remain faithful. And we don't see a God in Scripture that's just going to say, yes, there's a better tomorrow if you just believe or if you just hope, or if you, if you vote for the right presidential candidate, or if you just keep on hoping. You see a God in the midst of persecution training his church to persevere through suffering, through real persecution. So the text asks us this morning, in the face of evil, how can we prepare to fight well? This letter teaches us that Jesus remains victorious over the enemy, and therefore, we must persevere. How then can we do this? Well, there are, tr- there are three truths this morning that Jesus wants us to know. The first is that we must cherish Jesus above all earthly things. We must cherish Jesus above all earthly things. So Pergamum is located in the heart of this Roman Empire in Asia Minor. It was the first city to build a temple to the Roman ruler, which at the time was Caesar Augustus. Within Pergamum were numerous cultic practices dedicated to the worship of the Roman emperor, as well as other idols as well. And commentators mention that this type of political pressure to bow down to these idols likely put a strain on this church to either pay homage to Caesar himself or to these idols or risk being convicted of high treason. So Jesus starts off with this letter addressing them as one who has the sharp two-edged sword. So earlier in Revelation chapter 1, John details what the risen Christ looked like when he saw him. The text reads this, that from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. G.K. Beale links this to the prophecies linked in Isaiah 11 and 49, signifying the reality of Jesus' kingly and judicial reign over this church and also his opposition to the worldly powers that wield their powers unjustly towards this church in Pergamum and the various churches in Revelation. So what this is saying here is that Satan is using his political powers in Revelation to persecute this church. And and although that is a reality, Satan's power does not supersede that of Jesus Christ. And therefore, we can look with hopeful expectation, just like this letter to the church in Pergamum, that Jesus reigns supreme. He reigns supreme over the various churches in the world. He reigns supreme over the worldly powers. And we see this image of a sharp two-edged sword later on in Revelation 19, 
which reads this from verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron, with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So although there is reason to fear, Jesus tells them, fear not. I am the Alpha. I am the Omega. The reality of Jesus' lordship will be the foundation to which he addresses this church in Pergamum going forward. So he begins sharing to this church, beginning in verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now, what exactly does Jesus mean here? Well, remember, Pergamum was at the heart of the Roman Empire and various pagan cults like like Zeus or Athena or Demeter, these temples that were, were built to worship these idols. And Jesus attributes the worship of these idols to Satan's dwelling place because, again, as mentioned, Satan is going to use these politically driven idol-worshiping spheres to persecute the church. But Jesus sees where this church is, and although they dwell in the midst of darkness, he encourages them and tells them that they had held fast to his name, not denying the faith that he has given them. In the face of opposition, they were faithful. We see the example example of this in Antipas, who among the Pergamum church was one who died for his faith. Church, church uh, tradition claims that Antipas was, was slowly roasted to death in a bronze bull. So a bronze bull was literally built for a torture device and ultimately killed Antipas. He's attributed to being one of Christ's faithful witness and in a very cool way. Someone who was acknowledged by Jesus himself, and also the name faithful witness is attributed to Christ himself in chapter 1, verse 5. And although a witness does not necessarily mean that you are dying for your faith, Antipas does serve as an example for the church in Pergamum to follow. That yes, you testify, you bear witness to who Christ is, both in your private life and in your public life. And that could mean death. It could mean persecution. But your hope is not built on the things of this world. It's built on the name of Jesus. This word witness is also mentioned in the book of Isaiah chapter 43. Let me read this for you this morning. It says this, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. So Jesus takes this Old Testament tradition to a Jewish Christian audience and brings it full circle with this call to be Christ's witnesses. How are you Christ's witnesses? You know 
and believe in his name, understanding that he is God and God alone. He is the one who has the power to save. He is the one who calls people into his eternal covenant. He is the one who is able to bring you out of darkness, out of the bonds of your sin and misery, and bring you into joy and everlasting life. He is the God who is superior to all nations. There is no other God. And all that is required for your joy is to believe in his name and looking to Jesus, not your merit, not the things you you bring to the table, not your accomplishments, but your dependence and your utter helplessness to see Jesus for who he truly is this morning, cherishing him. Cherish Jesus, someone who who pardons even the most heinous of people, one one who pardoned the thief on the cross, telling him, today you will be with me in paradise. We cherish God because God is beautiful and powerful, and he is for you. He is not against you. What systems or structures do you notice in your communities or in the greater city of Orlando that trouble you? Is it the reality that Orlando is one of the most trafficked cities in the nation? Is it the various disparities of wealth from one side of I-4 to the next? Is it the reality that the public school system is increasingly growing hostile towards Christianity? Is it the reality that racism still exists in our city? And although these evils are troubling, we are reminded that Christ still stands in authority, over authority, over the church as its primary authority, and over the nations in the same way. And this is good news. This is great news for us this morning. This should lead us to be curious with the outside world, to engage the people around us, to be kind and charitable. We get a wonderful opportunity to engage the people around us because we have a God who is victorious. So we must cherish Jesus above all things. The next truth we see from this passage is that we must reject the false teachings of the age. We must reject the false teachings of the age. So Jesus turns the corner from encouragement to exhortation. And granted, he has a few things to say to this church in Pergamum. And there's judgment waiting for them if they do not heed his words. Verse 14 reads this, You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So we need, we need to clarify some things here, okay? So, so Jesus is not saying that these are the exact same Balaam worshipers as we see in Numbers 25. What's being described here are, are two different groups uh, that, that are similar and that are threats to this church. One who is being compared to the worshipers of Balaam in Numbers 25, and the Nicolaitans on the other. So we're going to explain what these groups are. So first, the worshipers of Balaam. 
Balaam in the original language means he who consumes the people. Now, if you remember back in Numbers 25, Balaam devised a plan against the Israelites by influencing the Moabite women to sleep with the Israelite men and also to worship the Moabite gods for the purpose of financial security. And as a result, this led that generation of Israelites to not enter the promised land and for Balaam to be destroyed by God himself. And these, these Balaam-like false teachers in Revelation were arguing that believers could have close relationships with the pagan cultures around them, with institutions and other religions, and still be in good standing with the Lord. Now, for further clarification, I have great relationships, at least I think so, uh, with people who uh, don't go to church, uh, perhaps in my apartment complex where we live, or uh, friends in college. This is not saying uh, don't associate with people who aren't Christians. What this is highlighting is a group of people in this church that pervaded around the church, giving license to freely participate in these pagan worship practices and eating false, uh, eating food associated with false worship and sexual immorality to top that off. Now, we know that Jesus in Mark 7 uh, talks about this idea of, of having food and eating food and the fact that it's, it's all made clean. Okay, so, so there's no such thing as you can't eat pork, you can't eat bacon. If someone tells you that, uh, tell them that Jesus tells you the opposite. That's free. But it's not what comes into a person that defiles them. It's what comes out of them that defiles them. So what's happening here is that, yes, there, there are people who are going to these temples and eating food sacrificed to idols, but it's not eating the food that condemns them. It's their heart motives. From Paul's viewpoint here in 1 Corinthians 8 and even in Revelation chapter 2, it's telling us that it's not, this, it's not the reality that drinking alcohol is a bad thing. But it's the motivation to become drunk that is. It's not necessarily doing ministry in casinos or an I-4 where prostitution is rampant. That's a bad thing. It's not what this is saying. It's saying that if you struggle with gambling or sexual morality, those aren't wise things to do. John here in Revelation chapter 2 is highlighting an issue for these Balaam worshipers and the Nicolaitans as well, is that they don't care about the conscience, the consciences of the people that they're, that they're with. So they're bringing these people into these temple courts to worship these idols and commit sexual immorality and indulge in that, and essentially replacing the worship of one God over the next. This is a heart issue. They care only for themselves and their economic flourishing. Because remember, Pergamum is where, where Satan dwells, right? So if you participate in these practices, it actually does well for you in the Roman Empire. You'll make a lot of money. That is not the way to flourish. That is not the way for the church to lead in following Jesus. 
So Jesus condemns them. He condemns these worshipers. So, so these were the, the Balaam worshipers Jesus is comparing to in Numbers 25. Next, we have the Nicolaitans. Nicolaitans, as Beal defines in the original language, is he overcomes the people. So Balaam, he consumes the people. Nicolaitans, he overcomes the people. They were mentioned earlier in the letter to the Ephesian church, but unlike the Pergamum church, the Ephesian church challenged the Nicolaitans' teachings, essentially saying that in a Gnostic sense, that they can worship uh, these pagan gods and they can participate somehow, but primarily for the main motivation of economic flourishing. They could succeed in the world in Rome amassing great wealth. So to be a follower of Balaam here and a follower of Nicholas or Nicolaitans is to compromise the church's credibility and witness in the Roman world. So Jesus commands this church to repent of their sins, to reject their false teaching and allowing these, these people to be in their midst without real accountability. Their toleration for these false teachers meant that Jesus himself, who again had the sharp two-edged sword, again, a comfort for us, was warring now against this church in Pergamum, that Jesus himself was at war and is declaring that if they do not repent of their sins. Here you see a God who hates evil. You see a God who hates those who misuse their power at the expense of others. You see a God who hates systems that promote status and influence over fairness and justice. In light of these things, we must ask ourselves, what spiritual compromises do we give ourselves over into? What decisions do we make that instead of choosing Christ, we, we choose these things. And I'm not just talking about those who struggle with sin because believe me, I struggle with sin, as well as every one of you. But those who continue to walk down a path where there is no guilt or shame in what they do, and it is utter sin, it is utter rejection to God. This is not talking about those who, who are believers where if you're walking down this path and you believe in Jesus, you may stumble, you may sin, but you're walking down this path. Are you walking into sin this morning without any guilt or shame? Revelation teaches us that the coming kingdom of Christ has no place for idol worship because Jesus is victorious over evil. Jesus is victorious over the worldly powers. We must not live by the flesh. We must live by the Spirit. You can't white-knuckle righteousness. You must trust in Jesus and depend upon him daily for your sustenance. So this means that you reject the false teachings of the age. That you need money to satisfy yourself. That the right political candidate will bring you flourishing 
that technology will be all that you need to survive. Instead of turning to these created things, we turn to Christ, who calls us to run the race as Hebrews 12 calls us, to reject the sin and the distractions that so easily entangle us, and to run with perseverance the race that is set before us. We must reject these false teachings because Jesus has sat down at the right hand of God in his victory, reigning over the world, and is calling you to repentance. He's calling you to see him for who he truly is. So we've seen that we must cherish Jesus above all things. We must reject the false teachings of the age. Lastly, we must conquer in view of Christ's victory. We must conquer in view of Christ's victory. So John brings us into this last section calling this church in Pergamum to listen to what the Spirit says. Verse 17 reads this, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus repeats himself, repeats this phrase 13 times in the New Testament. And each time, Jesus is talking about the coming kingdom. He is sharing some aspect of encouragement and exhortation, and he is calling them to press on because there is truly a reward for you and me this morning and for this church in Pergamum. So what does he promise? First, Jesus promises a portion of the hidden manna. Commentators point out that this, this manna uh, is uh, a portrayal of the end-time fellowship that we will have with Jesus, identifying in his death and resurrection. That is why the resurrection is so important. That's why I bank my entire life on the reality that Jesus rose from the dead. Because without that, there is no church, there is no hope, there is no reason why I'm here this morning, why you're here this morning. There is a hope here, and there is a reward here for you and me this morning. That believers are grafted into this, this covenant community, both internationally and intergenerationally. We're not called to be those who in Numbers 5 or 25 rejected God to worship Balaam. We're called to be like those of the remnant or the small few of those who, who chose back in Numbers 25 to receive the manna that God was giving. This, therefore, encourages us and the Pergamum Church to embrace a faith, a faith that, yes, although we cannot see Jesus, we believe by faith that he is real. Listen to these words in Hebrews 11. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old receive their commendation. So the Christians in Revelation are to serve God in a similar way to those who preceded them. Those such as Moses, Abraham, Esther, Ruth, David. Because they looked forward to the fulfillment that Christ was promising them. This, this hidden manna that they will receive and that will nourish them for eternal life forever and ever. That was their reward. 
we also see is a white stone and a name engraved on it. And commentators link this stone to the intimate presence of God and Christ with his people. As we see this expressed clearly in the latter half of Revelation chapter 2, which reads this, The throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There's one commentator who writes that this stone, this white stone with a name on it, is a special stone with a name that only God and the recipient know, as Rob shared. So I thought about what my name could be, you know, Lionheart or something cool like that. I don't know. But Jesus is saying, if you persevere, if you continue in the face of opposition and evil, I will, I will make my dwelling place with you that you will be my son or daughter. Uh, I, will, I will be with you in an intimate, beautiful, powerful way. That we will fellowship for the rest of eternity if you follow me. This is an invitation to the marriage supper that we will all participate in if we believe in Jesus And this is a meal that you don't want to miss. A celebration like no other. This is the fuel for this church in Pergamum to continue bearing witness to the gospel in the midst of an evil generation. We will conquer in the same way. If we hold fast to Christ, if we meditate on his word, believing that he is the one who guides us through the valleys of the shadow of death. He is the one who who restores our souls. He is the one who knows us by name and condemns us no longer because of his sacrifice. Do you ponder on these things, Christian? If you're anything like me, it's really hard to do that to think about the rewards that we have. Not, not in, a, like in a, like a competing way or like a sibling competing way or anything like that, but, but to, to think about the rewards that you have and that you will have in Christ. We will conquer. We will overcome this world and the evil that's in it because he remains victorious over evil and sin. We do, we do serve a victorious God this morning. Ready And he is ready to intercede for you. Hebrews 12, run the race that's set for you because he is faithful. And this is the fuel for you and me this morning in dark times. As as C.S. Lewis writes this, um, like many other times, he, he lived in the atomic age where the possibility of nuclear warfare was so real that people were panicking. You can imagine what that's like today with the war in Ukraine. Reflecting on the potential disaster in the 1940s, C.S. Lewis's essay on living in an atomic age helps shed some light as to how we can best respond in dark times. 
He writes this, if we are all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things, praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies. A microbe can do that. But they need not dominate our minds. So what he's saying is that if we're going to face suffering because of Christ's name, whether it's now or in future generations, let us welcome it. Amen? Let us live honorably and charitably within the walls of our church and within the outside world. Because Jesus reigns. Because Jesus reigns and he empowers us, his church, to, to live in light of his victory, in light of what he has done. That there will be a future where there, there will be no pain, no suffering, no persecution. We will continually be in the presence of God and experience his indescribable joy forever. And we can bank on that. Let us cherish who God is. Let us reject the false teachings of the world. And let us conquer in light of his victory. Let us pray. Jesus, thank you for your word that encourages us to persevere through this life, through the evil that is surrounding us, that, um, that perhaps is um, at our doorstep. We pray for, for the church in Nigeria and the churches across the world where persecution is a real reality, and we pray that the gospel go forth, that you bring comfort to the families uh, that are affected, and that you will come soon. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.